You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. Welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Mark Stout, historian of the museum. I'm a Ph.D. author and historian who served for 13 years as an analyst in the U.S. intelligence community. Every month, the museum brings you interesting talks with authors, scholars, and practitioners who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. We're joined today by David J. Thorpe, who served in the British Army from 1955 to 1988, uh, entering as an enlisted man and ultimately retiring as a major. He first enlisted as an apprentice tradesman back in the day in the Royal Corps of Signals and graduated from the Apprentice College in 1958 as a telegraph operator. It's not directly germane to what we're going to be discussing today, but it might be interesting for those of us who live in this modern era to know that at that time, in order to graduate, he was required to be able to uh, send and receive high-speed Morse at a rate in excess of 30 words a minute uh, for uh, sending and 35 for receiving, so no small feat. Um, After graduating from the college, he was trained uh, originally as an Arabic linguist and served for a time at a communications intercept unit in Cyprus, and then soon thereafter transferred to the British Army's Intelligence Corps, where he was trained in Russian and eventually received commission as an officer. In his specialist career, he worked most aspects of the signals intelligence business. Uh, While he primarily worked on the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact, at various times he also worked on events in the Middle East, on Quebec separatists in Canada, interestingly enough, the U.S. invasion of Grenada, and also the Falklands War. And the Falklands is what we're going to be talking about today. In 1982, David led a special tactical signals intelligence, or SIGINT, unit to the Falklands War. Uh, Under the name of D.J. Thorpe, he's written a new book about these events. It's entitled The Silent Listener, Falklands, 1982. We're interviewing Major Thorpe by Skype from his home in Cheltenham, England. David Thorpe, welcome to the International Spy Museum. Thank you for inviting me to come and talk to your listeners. Well, David, before we really get into it here, many of our listeners uh, to these podcasts are Americans uh, who may not be familiar, frankly, with the Falklands War, which took place at this point nearly 30 years ago. Can you just give us a little background about that war just to set the stage for what we're going to be talking about here? What was this all about? By all means. uh, I might uh, add that the Americans aren't the only ones who didn't know where the Falkland Islands were. Uh, There were uh, thousands of Brits who, in 1982, didn't know where the Falkland Islands were. A lot of them, surprisingly enough, thought it was part of uh, Scotland and the uh, Scottish Islands up north, but of course it was 8,000 miles away from uh, the UK. Uh, The Falkland Islands themselves are made up of a cluster in excess of 700 lesser islands, with the two main islands being East and West Falklands. 
The islands are situated some 300 miles east of the Argentine coast, as I mentioned, 8,000 miles from the shores of the United Kingdom, and they have a population of approximately 3,000 people. The government of the islands also administers the British dependent territories of South Georgia and the South Sandwich Islands, some 700 to 2,000 miles east and southwest of the Falklands. I mention this because right from the start, Georgia came into the frame because that's where the Argentinians initially made their first landing. Argentine claimed the, the islands uh, from about 1820, but Britain has occupied and administered the islands since 1833. And as I note, the Americans aren't going to get away with it because way back in uh, 1831, an American warship, the USS Lexington, destroyed the settlement in East Island and reprisals for the arrest of three of its United States ships that had been uh, hunting seals in the area. <laughs> now, on to the war itself. Uh, it started on the 2nd of April 1982, when the Argentinian Navy, with thousands of troops, landed on East and West Falklands. The small detachment of British Marines put up a futile resistance before the governor, Mr. Rex Hunt, and the Marines were removed to Montevideo and eventually back to the United Kingdom. On the 3rd of April 1982, General um, Menendez proclaimed as military governor of the island, and on this day there were some 10,000 troops actually on the islands themselves. On the 25th of April, a small unit of British commandos retook South Georgia. On the 30th of April, Alexander Haig, the United States Secretary of State at the time, had a mission to secure peace uh, and have it terminated, but unfortunately, although he was, and President Ronald Reagan, working to their uh, extremes, they were unable to ensure that uh, sanctions uh, were um, not to be denied from the Argentinians, and so we were thankful that the Americans sided with the British. Uh, on the 1st of May, the UK planes first attacked Port Stanley, which is the capital of the Falkland Islands, on the 21st of May in 1982, the British made an amphibious landing near Port Stanley. And on the 14th of June, the Argentinian govern, government in Port Stanley decided that uh, enough was enough and they signed a peace declaration. And the UK got the well, islands back. Unfortunately, during that period of time, there were some 655 Argentinian deaths and 256 British servicemen failed to return home. So when the Argentinians invaded the Falklands then, the British, frankly, were rather surprised, had to put together a naval task force to head down there. And as I understand it, um, your signals intelligence unit was part of that. Where were you and what was your position in the Army exactly when the Argentinians invaded the Falklands and you heard that you were going to be heading off to this uh, place, as you say, 8,000 miles from home in the South Atlantic? Yeah. Uh, in December of 1981... Uh, I left Berlin in West Germany, where I'd been employed again with a very sensitive unit monitoring the activities of the Soviets and the East German military. And I went to a small unit called the Special Task Detachment, which is located in Loughborough, which is in Leicestershire in England. This detachment was really in name only. Uh, I had a permanent cadre of myself plus two others a warrant officer and a corporal, and we had two vehicles. And it was designed to be a air portable unit to be flown at short notice to any trouble spots in the world, 
with the remainder of the crew being made up of specialists on the particular target array that we were to meet. For example, if we were somewhere in the Middle East, we would take an Arabic speakers. Uh, as we went down to the Argentine, this time we took Spanish speakers. So these people were withdrawn from their normal places of work at a very short notice to make up the numbers, and off we went. So a few people then whose purpose was to intercept signals, and then specialists added on whose uh, purpose was to listen to those intercepted signals and, and, and figure out what, they, what their content was. That's correct. It's, um, in this country in particular, we're having uh, a lot of media coverage on telephone hacking. Yes. Which, of course, is uh, no different to the telephone hacking, except we did it direct on the radio communications itself, and uh, we were perhaps more discreet than the media have been up to lately in this country. So that's the nature of the intelligence business, I guess. Uh, so who was your special task detachment actually supposed to support? What was, what was going to be done with these signals that you were sent to intercept from the Argentinian forces? We were a unique organization in so much as we were actually controlled by the Ministry of Defense itself, one of the very few units where they had this 100% hold on. Our job was to provide SIGINT support, signals intelligence support, to the commander of 3 Brigade. Now, 3 Brigade consisted of two regiments of airborne troops and two Marine commandos and they were all to depart at various times throughout the month of April, destined to go down to the Falkland Islands. Unfortunately, because it was a sort of a random makeup, they assembled parts of the task force at different times and had them on various ships, battleships, warships. We even had to take ships, what we call, out of trade. These were commercial vessels. The most uh, obvious one, of course, comes to mind was the uh, Queen Elizabeth that went down there. Uh, we had the Uganda. Uh, some of your listeners, in actual fact, may have had cruises on the Uganda. Uh, it was very much used as a, a commercial vessel. But that became our hospital ship, the Uganda, when we went down there. I went down on a RAF, uh, wrong, on a Navy warship, which was what referred to as a landing platform and dock. Uh, off this vessel, we were able to have aircraft, fixed wing, uh, taken off, these are the uh, Harrier aircraft, also helicopters, and in what I would call the hold, um, for sake of describing it, we had facilities there where we had four very, very large landing craft, so that when we pulled into our particular area of uh, activity, we could move anything up to a regiment of army personnel by landing craft onto the uh, land around where we were to carry out a bridgehead. One of the things that really struck me reading your book was the general unreadiness of the British military uh, at the time of the Falklands War and the extent to which you in particular, uh, though not uniquely, uh, had to you know, improvise and, and scrounge. Do you want to talk a little bit about some of the challenges of, uh, I, I noted particularly, of secure communication uh, that were difficult for you to overcome? By, by all means. Um, I had been used to working in a very professional environment uh, in, East, in, sorry, in West Germany, whereby we had a regiment at our disposal of intercept vehicles, uh, radio direction finding vehicles, jamming vehicles, you name it, we had the whole mash. Suddenly, I've now got this one little organization with two vehicles. On a, on a thing, ship. Yeah, the first problem we had, of course, was 
we were trained in air portability. Had we gone down with the air portable organization, we would have no problem with communications because part of our uh, standard operating procedures were that the Royal Air Force, who we would be in uh, league with, they would provide our long-haul communications. This was not to be, and we went down with the Navy. We were now a seabomb platform. The vessel that I was on, although it was a warship, did not have any satellite communications. So we had problems in getting our product to the commander of the task force as we were going down, and also in keeping people back in the UK um, informed of our activities, because we were quite unique in so much as we were there picking up a lot of unique material uh, and not able to get it back through lack of communication facilities. To one extent that I had to go over to the vessel with the command post on it, and I used to do this by thumb, literally thumbing a lift from the back of this uh, vessel that I was on by a helicopter or a, a seagoing vessel. And on this particular occasion, I managed to get a helicopter to take me over on the condition that they landed me by winch and they didn't actually land the helicopter onto the uh, deck. That was fine. So I uh, got on this aircraft together with my highly secret information in a brown envelope clutched to my chest. And as we got over the uh, vessel that I was due to be uh, put down on, the Argentinians suddenly appeared with an airstrike. The chap on the winch told me to hang on, and what they did was they left me dangling from the end of this piece of rope as the pilot of the helicopter went into the high ground in the hope he can get some cover from the aircraft coming over. He did, he managed to see it out in the, uh, the shade of the uh, high ground that we were in, and then when we got the all clear, he then, still with me dangling on the end of his rope, took me back to the vessel that I should have got off on and just nonchalantly lowered me down, waved goodbye and went on his way. And you didn't drop your envelope in the midst of all this excitement? Oh, I didn't drop my envelope, but it was somewhat uh, pretty steam age in comparison to nowadays if we uh, look at the communication facilities that are available in a similar condition. Okay, so uh, when the task force then arrived near the Falklands, what sorts of signals were you able to intercept? What could you guys hear, uh, even with uh, all the various uh, challenging circumstances you were operating under? When we departed um, shores of England, we knew that we could pick up any high-frequency activity, which would more than likely be Morse code. Uh, however, we were way south of the Ascension Islands, which is some 4,000 miles from the UK, before we picked up any high-frequency transmissions. And these in the main were from military communications that were on the mainland of the Argentine. As we got nearer, suddenly our very high-frequency spectrum became very active, and we had Spanish voices. When we analyzed these Spanish voices, we came to the conclusion that there was activity going on here, which was very much like uh, in the middle of a war. They were recording losses and hits and this sort of thing. Unfortunately, of course, we only had one end of the conversation, and that was the Spanish. But we found out, of course, when we started to analyze the product, that these transmissions in the VHF spectrum were coming from a place called Pebble Island, and the British Special Air Services and the Special Boat Services had an invasion of that island and were successful uh, in carrying out the destruction of several Pukara aircraft, etc., and we were picking up the communications from Pebble Island that were being sent down to Port Stanley 
which was where the headquarters of the Argentinian ground forces were located. So we were very fortunate that we were far in excess of a normal communication distance, but able to pick up these signals. As we proceeded further south, then the picture became a lot more clear. And they had one net in particular, which we refer to as the uh, Command Ground Forces Network. And this was with a control in Port Stanley, working in the high frequency spectrum to outstations in Goose Green, Darwin, uh, and a couple of other locations on West, on East Island, and also on West Island at two locations, one at Port Howard and one at Forks Bay. And this turned out to be their main communication. The type of communication they were sending in the main was encrypted material. So uh, we weren't able to get very much sense initially as to what was going on. We had no direction finding capability with us, which meant that we couldn't locate exactly where these outstations were on the ground. However, uh, we were very, very fortunate that we had six very, very highly skilled and trained personnel. And in our basic training way back in those days, we had to be uh, trained in cryptology. We had a corporal who had a special bent for cryptology who had said, I've seen this somewhere before. I might add that at this particular stage, we were sending all of our stuff back to the UK to national centers where they had the computers and other num number crunching devices to decode the encrypted material that sent them. So you were sending your materials back to GCHQ, the British equivalent of the National Security Agency, up to, up to so this point. You, you said that, Mark, yes. All uh, right. You, you didn't say that. I'm, I'm inferring that. So go ahead. Yeah. We'll take that, uh, as, take that for the sake of argument. Uh, and, and also to uh, a few other units in, uh, in the UK that were interested. Now, we were stuck. Until such times as we were able to decrypt the uh, code, then there wasn't a lot we could do other than copy. But this one corporal that I had, who, as I say, he was convinced that uh, he'd seen it somewhere before, he, in actual fact, broke the code before the national centers did. Now, I'm not saying that uh, he was that good, because I know for a fact that we would have been very low in priority in the decryption processing carried out in national centers. But where we were, we knew we had to devote 24-7 to the breaking of this code, otherwise we wouldn't be able to do anything. We then were fortunate enough, although it was a daily changing code, uh, we were able to every day break the code, and no matter what the Argentinians did, then we were that one step ahead because we were being informed at the same time as their men on the ground. Were you able to draw any inferences about the quality and nature of the Argentinian troops that were defending the Falklands? Very much so. Um, the, the biggest thing, of course, was that being a military organization at a place of war, then you want to know losses of your own troops as much as anybody else. So at least once a day, possibly in some cases twice a day, the outstations would send a manpower situation report, giving us the current strengths and losses. Also, they would subdivide their current strengths down into specialist capabilities. So it wasn't long before we knew that, for instance, at um, Goose Green, Darwin, there was about 1,500 uh, Argentinian troops made up mainly of conscripts. And these conscripts were young people, uh, male, didn't see any ladies actually uh, in the Falklands, 
Uh, they're all male that I came across. But they were young lads, 16 to 18, who had been taken out of their schools, put into uniform, given a gun, very limited training, and sent to the Falklands. Now, we were also able to ascertain, and bear in mind that this was not a face-to-face -face communication, this was on the intelligence that we were able to derive from breaking their codes, that a lot of these youngsters were called up in the middle of the night and told that they were going to defend the motherland, i.e. Argentina. And under cover of darkness, they flew them from an airport in the Argentine to the Falklands, and not being aware of where they were, they honestly thought that they were actually fighting in the Argentine itself. And it wasn't until the war was over and they had to go on ships to get back that they finally realized that they hadn't been fighting in the Argentine, but they were some 400 miles away from home. It's quite something to imagine a 16, 17, 18-year-old Argentinian boy who's, as you say, only semi-trained and suddenly finds himself facing the Royal Marines for crying out loud. Yes. Um, I had a particular piece of success with our very first battle on the 6th of May was at Goose Green, Darwin, where we sent in two para to, in the hope at that time, of overcoming the Argentinian resistance in this area of Goose Green, Darwin, on East Island. Now, the commanding officer of that organization um, was a lieutenant colonel in the Paracorps uh, by the name of H. Jones. He came to see me before he actually took his men into battle because he'd been trying to get some intelligence from other people and it ended up with nothing about the activities and what was happening at Goose Green, Darwin. But he has the fortune to meet up with an officer from the Special Air Services who was aware of my existence, and I had at times been very, very useful in passing him information about his activities, which were being observed by the Argentinians. And he brought him in to, to me to uh, have a briefing on what to expect when he got there. Now, you might laugh at this, but when I left England, I was told that peacetime restraints remained, which meant that I wasn't allowed to speak to anybody about any subject matter that I'd got on my particular level unless they were cleared to receive it. So when this uh, Special Air Service officer came up with uh, Colonel H. Jones and he introduced me and said, now will you brief him? I turned around to the uh, SAS chap and said, is he cleared? And with that, he got me by the scruff of the neck, put me up against the wall and said, we are at war. And I said, yeah, I know we're at war and I'm a coward, bring him in, what does he want to know? So he came in and I briefed him, and this is when we got into an area which I, as an intercept specialist, uh, was always afraid of, that they would expect me to analyze the proper. Well, I was never trained in analyzing it because all I saw was mine, and I had tunnel division. I didn't see what was happening around me, where our own troops were and this sort of thing. I concentrated on the enemy. It turned out that um, he was going into battle with a full regiment of uh, paratroopers, which is in excess of 600 men, plus a few other bits and pieces that he managed to take with him. And I said, well, now you are meeting a resistance of at least 1,500 men. And he said, yes, okay, what are my chances? Well, not good, because if you go to staff college in this country, you are taught tactics. And if you are a defending organization, then you need about 
a third of the numbers compared to if you are an attacking organization. So on that assumption, if the Argentinians had a strength of 1,500, he would need at least three times that many troops in order to uh, gain any chance of success. Well, that comes to 4,500. He had less than 900. So on paper, his chances weren't very good. But when I told him that the majority of those who were defending were, as I've mentioned, young schoolboys with very little training, uh, I didn't see them as being great opposition to a British paratrooper, a regular soldier who had uh, a lot of weapons at his disposal, a lot of know-how, a lot of expertise, a lot of experience. And we were lucky, as it turns out, that the smaller force overpowered the larger one, and after a many deaths, they took over the Goose Green Darwin uh, location. And as I understand it, Colonel H. Jones, whom you gave this briefing to, lost his life in the course of that battle and won a Victoria Cross, is that correct? He did, yes. Um, it was very unfortunate that uh, he decided to do things his way. Um, one believes that as a commanding officer you would stand to the back and you would direct operations, but um, there are people who want to lead from the front and he was very much one of those people. Let me just mention for our American listeners who may not know, the Victoria Cross is the British equivalent of the Medal of Honor. It's the highest British uh, military uh, award. Um, So we've talked a lot about what you were able to get from the Argentinian ground forces and how on this particular occasion, uh, especially the Battle of Goose Green, that that turned out to be very important information to commanders. Uh, Were you also able to pick up Argentinian air traffic? You mentioned that the Argentinian... Uh, Air Force would occasionally show up and attack the British task force, uh, leading you to be swept away hanging from underneath a helicopter at one point. Were you you able to get insights into what was going on with the Argentinian Air Force as well? Very little. However, um, I've got a lot of respect for the Argentinian Air Force, I must say that now. Every day, the vessel I was on, HMS Intrepid, at sunrise had to be anchored in the anchorage at San Carlos Bay. That was the main focus of the Argentinian area of bombardment. And every day for 30 days, the Argentinian aircraft came across and they dropped their bombs and shells on the task force anchored in San Carlos. So for 30 days, we experienced this. How we survived without getting hit, I do not know. Uh, But we did survive, very fortunately. Now, biggest problem that faces Uh, modern-day warfare is being able to have air superiority or without that at least some form of defense against it. Now our defense against it was a surface-to-air missile system called the Rapier which unfortunately when it was loaded onto vessels in the United Kingdom for transportation it wasn't given any form of priority and so when we arrived at San Carlos and had to unload the vessels we didn't have any surface-to-air missile defensive system uh, there waiting for the arrival of the Argentinians. We were lucky in so much as we had a very, very useful piece of uh, technical apparatus, which if we put in the parameters of known Argentinian Air Force radios, this would go on fast scan, this piece of equipment, and if anything should become active uh, on the spectrum, it would notify us immediately. We were aware that the Argentinian Air Force departed home soil 
with only one person, and that was the group uh, leader, knowing what his task was, what his mission was. So what they did was they flew out to the area around the Falkland Islands under air uh, radio silence. The British Navy had a couple of destroyers and frigates uh, to the west of East Island towards the Argentine, where when these aircraft came over, they could, in actual fact, pick out some of their radar transmissions and that sort of thing, but they weren't always successful. When the Argentinian aircraft arrived over the land of the Falkland Islands, we had no early warning system whatsoever, except this wonderful piece of kit that we had. As I mentioned, they would come over on radio silence, and their briefing was such that the rest of the pack were not aware of what the target array was to be until they arrived over the Falkland Islands and they broke radio silence and the leader of the pack then gave instructions for their targets. When he broke radio silence, this machine of ours locked on and we were able to confirm that the Argentinians were in close proximity to the Falklands. But at that point, then, the ships didn't have a lot of time to respond, presumably. They didn't have a lot of time, but a little time is better than no time. Uh, and by the use of ship's horns and this sort of thing, we were able to initiate a form of early warning system. So although we'd gone there to listen to Argentinian communications, we finished up by being an early warning system for the task force located in San Carlos. I understand that there were even, under some special circumstances, you were even occasionally able to hear into uh Argentinian bomber aircraft hear the crew talking to the to each other is that true that is very true in fact there were two instances I'll give you an example of one of them is that we had come from uh, carrying out operations overnight around the islands and it was getting near to dawn and we were on our way back to our anchorage where we had to be for daylight when we suddenly were aware that there were Argentinian aircraft above us because we picked up their transmissions. And as they overflew us, they were on a particular mission, and they suddenly realized that there below them was a target of opportunity, i.e. the vessel that I was on. And they decided that they would turn around and come back and um, see what they could do in a way of dropping a few shells on us. I immediately went to the captain of Intrepid and I said to him, that aircraft above, he said, yes, it's one of ours. I said, no, it isn't. I said, that's an enemy aircraft. Oh, dear. With that, he got a hold of uh, one of the ship's crew and said, right, I think we've just come through a snow cloud. And to which he said, yes, we have. He said, well, put me back under that snow cloud, will you? So we went under the snow cloud, and we were sat there listening to the Argentinian aircraft talking to each other, saying, well, they were here a minute ago. Where have they gone to? But, of course, they didn't have uh, enough fuel to spend time over uh, an unknown target because they had a particular mission to carry out. So they left us. And then we came out of the snow cloud and returned to our location. On another example, the warrant officer who I had was a, an excellent linguist. He suddenly went white. He was listening into a communication system. And I said, what's the matter? He said, listen to this. And I listened to it. And really, it was the death rattles of a dying man. What had happened was he'd overflown. A British missile uh, heat-seeking had been fired at him, and he, from his cockpit window, could see this missile approaching him. Now, 
where, what he did to allow the communication to come out, I don't know. But somehow or other, we got linked in to the captain of that particular Argentinian's aircraft communications to the crew to the rear. And the captain was saying, we've had it, we've got this missile coming into us. And the next thing is, we heard him scream out and we were aware that uh, it was a hit by one of the British missiles. And when you listen to that sort of thing, it does sort of turn your stomach a little. Uh, even though we were at war, you still have to feel some, uh, feel sorry and some pang of guilt because of these things happening. Sure. Along the way, at one point, you caused a bit of a commotion in the task force, I understand, by warning of a possible Argentinian chemical weapons attack? Yes. Um, although we had great success in decryption of the major uh, code they were using, they were, of course, using other codes. One of them, which was being used to a lesser extent, uh, this was on, uh, again, a daily changing system, and we had problems with the recoveries to break it. However, we had sufficient um, information from the decrypt of this code to indicate that there was tentative evidence to suggest that there was going to be a gas attack. Now, I've got this critical piece of information, so what do I do with it? Um, I sent it to uh, the, the commander of the task force, Admiral Woodward, who was on the Hermes, and I said, I have this tentative evidence. And he came back and said, I want to know the evidence because they're playing dirty and I will take this to the United Nations. Send me all the information you've got on it. Well, it was of no use to him because he didn't know the story in the build-up to this particular decrypt that we were doing. So he did, in actual fact, take action, and he ordered the task force to adopt nuclear, biological, and chemical uh, warfare situation, whereby all ground forces had to carry respirators and the clothing necessary for their own protection. In addition, of course, we're now dealing with the British Royal Navy, where the law unto themselves, they're allowed to grow facial hair, which is, of course, the Air Force and the Army were never allowed to do so. But when the order came out to adopt the NBC clothing, the first thing he had to do was to shave the beards off, because uh, a respirator would be of no use to anybody wearing a, a beard. And everywhere I went around, I heard curses about, oh dear, my wife is never going to recognize me. She'd only ever see me with a beard. If I find that fellow who initiated this, is going to be trouble. And I thought, hello, that's me, I better move. The interesting thing about it was that halfway through the war, towards the end of it, somebody sent me some photographs. And these were canisters with certain markings on that were found at Goose Green, Darwin, after the battle uh, there with the para organization. And my linguist tried to translate what was on them. You couldn't make out the contents other than the fact that it was gas of some sort. And later on, of course, we did find that they had napalm, which they didn't use, but they did have it. So my actions in notifying the task force commander of a possible uh, gas attack were, I thought, well-founded. Well, I think it's a wonderful example of how intelligence is so often ambiguous. 
very, very seldom do we have 100% certain answers about the things that the commanders or the senior officials want, want to know. And that doesn't always go over well with them, but it's the reality that, that we as intelligence personnel uh, live with on a daily basis. Um, there's so much we could talk about here, but let's just go to the end of the story. The far, final Argentinian surrender came on June 14th um, at Port Stanley, uh, but the the end of the war was a bit dramatic from an intelligence perspective, as I understand it. You'd been watching a developing situation back at San Carlos, which is where the British uh, initial British landings had, had been. Can you tell us about what the, the, the last days of the war looked like from your perspective uh, conducting signals intelligence operations? I'll try and paint the scenario. Uh, you can imagine you now have two islands, East Island and West Island. East Island has the majority of the Argentinian troops. That's where their headquarters was. And they also have the headquarters of the British task force. On West Island, there were two organizations, one located to the north in Port Howard and one to the south in Fox Bay. Now, the British broke out from Goose Green, wrong, Goose Green Diamond later, but they broke out from San Carlos and they went north. Now, bearing in mind that you weren't able to drive vehicles, we had lost an awful lot of aircraft so this advance was by foot, and you had the Marines and the Paras with 80 kilos of uh, equipment, uh, personal and military, on their backs, walking the 80 miles from where we landed in San Carlos Bay to the battle scene, which is surrounding Stanley. So you had a pincer movement with organizations going to the north of East Island and organizations coming around to the south of East Island. The majority now of the Argentinian troops were in Port Stanley itself. To the rear in San Carlos was the British Mains Supply Area and the British Hospital. Now, I mean main supply, we had all our uh, oil, all our food, all our ammunition, all our equipment, etc., there in San Carlos. We also had in excess of 2,000 Argentinian prisoners of war. Guarding those 2,000 Argentinian prisoners of war were approximately 400 Marine commandos who were, a lot of them were injured and they were battle-weary themselves. I was aware that the Argentinians were planning a counterattack from West Island over to East Island. Now, how they intended doing this was they were going to fly in 500 airborne troops they had approximately 1,500 troops already at Port Howard. They had a further 1,500 troops in Fox Bay. So we've now got 3,500 troops. They were going to get over to uh, East Island by means of helicopters and by making a vessel, which the British thought had been grounded, was no longer seaworthy, by making that seaworthy and using it to transport forces from West Island to East Island. So then suddenly you would have this invasion of four and a half thousand Argentinians plus the two thousand Argentinian prisoners of war and defending all this would have been 400 Brits. Uh, this doesn't add up. And we arrived at the scenario where you had in the Stanley area approximately 10,000 Argentinian troops. In the center of East Island you had about 10,000 British troops, and then to the east of 
sorry, yeah, to the to the west of East Island, if you know where I mean, San Carlos, you had a further four and a half, five thousand Argentinian troops. Now, as much as I fed this information to the hierarchy, I was not believed. They had other things on their mind. Who was I, this little chap there with his six men, uh, telling them what the what was going on? Uh, there, there was throughout the whole of this campaign an ignorance to the capability of the organization that I represented. Uh, that again was through a lack of education on our part, so nobody was at fault other than ourselves. However, that was the situation, and this counterattack was due to take place on the 15th of June at 0800 in the morning. The war finished at 23.59 on the 14th of June, when there was a ceasefire in Stanley. Now, the interesting part about it is that when the ceasefire was taken, the officer commanding the Argentinian forces could not speak on behalf of those on West Island. So whilst he said, we are having arrangements for a ceasefire on East Island, you'll have to negotiate a separate one for West Island. So fine. They decided to go over on the morning of the 15th to West Island, where the ceasefire was uh, taking place. We then had to move these Argentinian troops from West Island to East Island in order to facilitate their evacuation and their return to the Argentine. The planned deployment of 500 airborne troops did not materialize. But we had approximately 2,000 troops in the Port Howard area who came onto the vessel I was on, on Intrepid, for transportation to San Carlos, onward journey back to the, the Argentine. When they arrived on our vessel, I said to a warrant officer, who have we got on board? And he said, I don't know. So I said, would you mind going finding out? He did, and he came back, and he said that there is uh, a, a list here of names that I managed to uh, obtain. Any of those you want to see? And one of them, I noticed, was a records officer. That was his appointment, gave his name and a records officer. So I said, what's this gentleman? Ah, he said, I remember him. He said, he's carrying a very nice briefcase, like a Gladstone bag, in Hyde. And I said, yes. And I said, I expect you got your eye on that Gladstone bag, have you? No, no, no. He said, but it, it, I did notice it. So he said, well, let's have a look at the contents of the Gladstone bag. So he went down there and relieved the officer of his bag and brought it up to me, and I opened it. This is spoils of war, bearing in mind. Uh, just as well I opened it, because the first thing I noticed there was two pistols inside, and he's supposed to have been checked before he got on the uh, Intrepid. Thumbing through the paper, I found a piece which looked very familiar. And what this piece of paper was, was the handwritten notes of this officer who had attended a meeting concerning the counterattack on west on east island from west from east from west island to east island and in there was the whole proposal of the airborne troops being um, transferred from mainland argentine to the uh, port howard area how they were going to get across and how those in fox bay were going to get across so that was the proof that in actual fact what i've been telling the military commanders about the counterattack, there was this piece of paper, which in my book, in actual fact, they have photo-produced it, and uh, there is a copy of the actual instructions that this man was taking. So I think I was vindicated there, more ways than one.
Uh, I still have that piece of paper because uh, I take great delight in looking at it and thinking, yes, that is a good story. It is a fabulous story. And for those of you who want more, again, I'll refer you to, uh, to DJ Thorpe's book, The Silent Listener, Falklands 1982. Um, I, I really applaud you for writing a book that's, that's, that's great fun to read and also I think teaches us a lot about not only a war that's, as you say, not well known to a lot of people, but also about the signals intelligence business in support of military operations, a, a particularly secret and, and, and obscure corner of the intelligence business. So, David Thorpe, thank you so much for a fascinating discussion. Best of luck to you and, and best of luck with your book. Thank you. and The pleasure is all mine. I've enjoyed uh, speaking to your listeners. Thank you. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you, and we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we'll see you next month.